I invite you now to turn your Bibles with me to Psalm 130. I want to read the eight verses of Psalm 130 in connection with Lord's Day 5. So Psalm 130. And here we hear God's word as follows. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy. With him is abundant redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Thus far. And then would you turn with me in the back of your Psalter hymnal to Lord's Day 5. I find that on page 874. 874 in the back of your Psalter hymn, Lord's Day 5, question and answer 12, 13, 14, and 15. Lord's Day 5, page 874. And here it is asked, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? God requires that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of this justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. Can we make this payment ourselves? Certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day. Can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? No. To begin with, God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of a mediator and deliverer should we look for then? One who is true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also true God. This the church does confess to believe. May God add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this afternoon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Bowmanville with me this afternoon. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the announcement of the wonderful transforming love of God, but it is a love that in scripture is set against the background of God's righteous wrath. The gospel is good news. It is good news of an inspired hope, but it is a hope that is set in scripture against the context, within the context of darkest despair. The gospel is the promise of deliverance and of heaven itself. And yet in scripture, it is given us in the context of death and hell. And this background of wrath, despair, and death and hell has been held before our eyes in the previous three Lord's Days as we examined the sin and misery of man. No attempt was made to soft-pedal it. No effort was made to change the blackness into some kind of gray. 
No effort was made to change God's thundering admonition to a soft warning or to tone it down to a threat of, a righteous, of the righteous judge to, to some mild grandfatherly advice. That is the tendency of much of contemporary Christianity. Most of modern day Christianity would encourage us to forsake what they call the Old Testament God of wrath and accept as a substitute a kindly loving God of the New Testament as if, as if somehow a disjunction could be made between the two Testaments. They would convince us that there is a conflict between the God of wrath of the Old Testament and the God of love of the New Testament. However, remaining faithful to the Bible, the catechism, our catechism has tenaciously with bulldog teeth resisted this temptation and held on to what we confess to believe and assured us that nowhere, nowhere does the scripture make allowances to gloss over sin. Rather, as we've seen over and over the last several Lord's Days, the scripture would have us know that man is a fallen creature and his fall was very great. He is indeed a priest, but he's now a priest with an unholy heart. He's a prophet, but his prophetic mouth utters lies. He is a king, but he's a king in bondage to sin. And across his face is written, Ichabod, for the glory of the Lord has departed. And it, in its place now is the wrath and the condemnation of God. And now a question that legitimately confronts us here is, why? Why does the catechism go to such lengths and place such an emphasis on these depressing matters. If the gospel is indeed another word for good news, and it is, if the gospel is indeed another word for good news, and if the scripture is concerned with giving us the wonderful good news of the gospel, why then does the catechism insist on spending at least three Lord's Days detailing our sin and God's wrath upon it? Many people, even many churches, have long since abandoned any discussion of sin and misery and have determined that to speak of sin is counterproductive in our efforts to win men and women for Christ. As, as men like Robert Schuller used to say, men and women don't need to be told how sinful they are. They need to be stroked. They need to be told how wonderful they are. That's how we will teach them of the need of, of the love of God. People of God, make no mistake. Men who bring that kind of a gospel, they don't show the way to heaven, but they graciously usher men and women into hell because they refuse to confront men and women with the consequence of their sin. But we've done it all so differently. Week after week, sermon after sermon, in this series, we were taught of our sinful, hopeless, and lost condition. And so again, we ask the question, is it really important that we so clearly articulate these things which are so depressing? The answer given us in scripture is a resounding yes. But we also need to understand why. First of all, we need to know of these things precisely because it is so distasteful and offensive to modern autonomous man. One of the greatest tragedies of our time, of our culture, is that our culture, and to a large extent even much of contemporary evangelical churches, have succumbed to the fallacy that man needs to first of all be taught to feel good about himself. 
Contemporary psychology has conditioned the world and the church to believe that, that low self-esteem is an obstacle preventing men and women from coming to their full potential. People of God, make no mistake. The modern self-esteem movement is a cleverly disguised tool of the devil and he uses it for our destruction. The human potential philosophy with, with, with perhaps all of the best of intentions rather than helping the, rather than helping man on his road to grace and to God, it in fact places obstacles on the road to God and it prevents men and women from rightly seeking God. For you see, as long as men and women are still filled with their own spirit, there is no room for the Holy Spirit. When a man is still puffed up with his own goodness, answers to life's problems are sought in man himself and in his own human potential rather than in recognizing his own personal bankruptcy. We need to understand this biblical truth well. According to our Bible, without a recognition of our own total depravity, first of all, or if you will, without a conscious awareness of our spiritual inability, it is impossible to find the Christ. Unless and until man is driven to his knees, seeking forgiveness for his corrupt nature and his corrupt living, until and unless man recognizes not his potential, but his spiritual bankruptcy, it will not be possible for him to find the way of salvation. Therefore, the catechism has meticulously <laughs> and carefully followed the leading of the Bible to expose to us, first of all, our own hopelessness, our own lost condition apart from Christ. Therefore, the emphasis on these depressing truths, scriptural truths. My dear precious people of God gathered with me here in Bowmanville, if you take nothing else home with you from the sermon this afternoon, remember at the very least this. In order for man to understand and appreciate the need for God's redemption in Christ, man must first of all be convinced of the seriousness of his condition. Understand with me again why faithful churches still insist on reading and preaching the law of God. Paul teaches us here that without the law, we would not know what sin was. And without a knowledge of sin, there would be no need of a savior. That makes sense, doesn't it? He who has no knowledge of his sin will also see no need for a savior. If you don't know of your sin or that you're a sinful being, why would you seek a Christ? Why would you seek a Savior if you don't know what you need to be saved from? Man needs to be convicted and convinced that his condition is so serious that the only way out, the only hope is a miracle, a miracle that only God can perform. The collapse of fallen, of fallen man in the garden was so great, so profound, so radical, and so complete that nothing but the power of the recreating God can restore it. And that's been the lesson taught us by the Catechism in the previous Lord's Days. And now beginning in this section under the heading of man's deliverance, the Heidelberg begins to point us to the only way of a return to God's favor. And so I want to administer God's word to you this afternoon using as my theme, 
the sinners cry for deliverance. The sinners cry for deliverance. We want to consider, first of all, the necessity of deliverance, and then we want to learn of the means or the way of deliverance. So the sinners cry for deliverance, the necessity of it, and the way or the means of it. The first question before us reads, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both in this world and forever after. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? And we need to be reminded again that the catechism in its entirety is the confession of the born-again, regenerated child of God. These questions cannot be answered with integrity by an unbeliever. Also in the context of this question, that needs to be underscored for you see, in this question already, the child of God has learned to acknowledge that he stands condemned before God and he confesses that to be rightly so. Do we not hear him say, according to the righteous judgment of God, we deserve punishment now and forever. In other words, the true child of God has learned to say that all of us and each of us as fallen creatures, having been tempted by the devil, having given ourselves over to reckless disobedience, having lost the gifts of God's favor and his image, have now been transferred to the dominion of darkness and Satan. And he now has dominion over us. As far <coughs> as, far as it lies within us, and as far as we are concerned, as far as it lays in us, it is finished. There is no hope. The child of God has learned the lesson well, and he has now been brought to the proper place of humility, where now, in that frame of mind, it is possible to begin to learn of the way of return to the house of the Father. The Christian here now seeks a possible restoration. Note carefully, he's not asking God to gloss over or to simply ignore his sin. No, he's been taught well, and he is acutely aware of the righteousness and the dire consequence of his sin. He knows right well that his sin makes him worthy of condemnation. He has recognized that he has conf and he has confessed that. In fact, he confesses to deserve the very flames of hell. And his desperate question is, is there any way, is there any way whereby God can justly deal with my sin and I can yet live? In other words, in the context of all that we have learned here about the demands of God and the disobedience of man, is there any way possible that God can remain God and that I can still live? After all, God had said, if you disobey, you will die in Adam and I have sinned. Is there any way then that God can maintain his word and yet allow me to live? That's the question before us. Notice now also the answer, acknowledging that because of sin, man deserves eternal and temporal punishment. The catechism points out that there is only one way, and that way is that God's justice must be satisfied. That's the only way, that God's justice must be satisfied. And my dear precious people of God, that makes sense even logically. But it's a horrible answer. It's a devastating answer. The catechism makes no effort here to mollify us. It doesn't seek to stroke us. No, to the contrary. 
One more time, it drives home the righteousness of the, or the seriousness of the situation and delivers another stunning blow to man's self-esteem and his personal ego. God demands that his justice be satisfied. God demands that his justice be satisfied. The Catechism teaches us that according to the Bible, God will not permit sin to go unpunished. And my dear people of God, we need to underscore every syllable here. We need to understand what's being taught us here. We need to appreciate what is at stake here. You see, man was given the obligation to keep God's law perfectly. But man failed to honor God's law. Instead, man recklessly disobeyed him. Man broke covenant with God. And man now daily adds to the guilt of his sin. But, but, but God's word stands firm. If you disobey, if you fail to keep my law, you will surely die. Capture this with me. Satisfying God's justice consists of two things. First, man is obligated to love God and neighbor perfectly. And secondly, having failed to do so, he must die. Understand me well. God, being God, cannot do otherwise. He not only wills it to be so, it must be so. In order for God to remain true and holy God, God must and will keep his word. You will surely die. And again, we are brought to the brink of despair. But a ray of hope given already in this answer of the catechism. God demands that his justice be satisfied, that the claims of his justice be paid and met in full, either by ourselves or by another. And this another is still a mystery up to this point, a mystery hidden from us. And so the beginning of the answer to the question whether there's any way of escape and restoration is, yes, there is. Yes, there is, provided we can find someone who can perfectly satisfy God's righteousness, whether it be ourselves or another. Keep in mind, though, keep in mind again, although here we read of a possible substitute, the fact remains that the debt must be paid in full. So then we can be reconciled to God if satisfaction is made for sin. Okay, but then the next logical question has to be, can we pay this debt ourselves? In other words, can I, can you, can we? Can we ourselves meet the demands of God's justice? Can we pay the debt that we owe ourselves? Does this perhaps fall within the realm of that human potential that is constantly being held before me by this world? And the inescapable answer is a resounding no, no, no. Actually, we increase our debt every day. And my dear people, God, that's not what we wanted to hear. But that is the clear testimony of Scripture. Do we not read in Matthew 2, the verses 4 and 5, do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment shall be revealed. No. How could we who by nature are inclined to hate God and neighbor, how could we love him with all of our hearts and also pay for the guilt of our sin? 
How could we ourselves bear this wrath of God's anger against sin and still live? Can I, can you, can we ourselves, can we pay for our sins? No. As the songwriter said it so poignantly, no other work will do. No other blood save thine. No other work save that which is divine can bear me safely through. Keep in mind also, as the Catechism points out here, that we increase our debt every day. So not only are we dealing with our original sin, that which we've been born with as a result of inherited from our first parents in paradise, our sinful nature, but also further, as the scripture teaches us, even the holiest of men, even the godliest of saints, they have only a very small beginning of that perfect obedience that is required of us. All of mankind is still polluted with the stains of sin. And so daily, every single man, woman, and child, daily, they add to the soil of their filthy garments. Daily, man needs to fall on his knees and cry out in anguish, Oh, Father, forgive me my sins again of this day. Who of us can say, I have cleansed my heart. I have purified my life of all sin. If we wish to be made right with God because of our works, our efforts, ourselves, then we must be able to demonstrate that all of our lives, all of our living, with all of our being, we have done it all perfectly in perfect obedience to all of God's law. And again, the Catechism wants us to know that obviously it is an impossibility for us ourselves to atone for our sin. And that being the case, then also obviously since we cannot do it ourselves, it must be done by another if we are to be restored to God's favor. And that is now before us in the next question, which reads, can another creature, can another creature, any at all, pay for this debt for us? People got these questions and answers need to be ours as well. Try, if you will, exert yourself to capture with me the spirit of this discussion before us this afternoon. Make it your own question and your own answer. Make it your own confession. Here we are hearing the plaintive cry of the convicted and penitent sinner. He cries out and confesses his guilt and his own inability to pay for his sin. And yet he earnestly seeks deliverance and he urgently seeks to be reconciled to God to again experience his blessing and his favor. And therefore now his anxious, his desperate question, can another creature, any creature at all, can another creature, any creature be found that can pay for my sin? Imagine now also, if you can and will, his devastation upon learning that this door is closed to him according to God's word. Hear the answer, no, no. To begin with, God will not punish another creature for man's guilt. Besides, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal anger against sin and release others from it. I want to repeat that. No. Can any creature be found who can pay for my sin? No. To begin with, God will not punish another creature for man's guilt. Besides, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal anger against sin and release others from it. No. Nowhere can we find a creature 
that can pay for sin. Although it's true that in the Old Testament, animals were used to atone for the sins of God's people, but that was only imagery. It was symbolism, which was to portray to Israel the foreshadowing of the one who was to come in the flesh to take away the sins of the world. No, the blood of rams and bulls and goats cannot take away our sin. Furthermore, how can an animal, an animal without a soul or conscience, how can an animal without a consciousness of sin, without a consciousness of the moral law, how can an animal without that consciousness atone for God's image bearers? That's impossible. Well then, what then of angels? Could we perhaps find an angel who would be suitable to bear the punishment of God's anger against man's sin? Well, it goes without saying, of course, that among the fallen angels it can't be found any worthy, but, but we read in the Bible also of good, holy angels. Holy angels who have not fallen. Could not among them be found one who could meet the claims of God's justice in our place? You know the answer again? No. God will not punish another creature for man's guilt. The answer is clear. Angels, too, are creatures. They are created beings, but they are not human. So then the solution needs to be sought at home. It needs to be found where the guilt lies. It is the sins of man that must be paid for. Sins of angels will not be punished in man, but the opposite is also true. Man has sinned. Man must pay. That's the whole problem. Man has sinned, and, man, and so man, or not another creature, must pay. See here again the justice of God. God has determined that man has sinned, and man must pay for his sin. And to act contrary to his own word would do violence to the very nature of God's own holiness. What the Catechism insists that we know here is that no mere creature can pay for sin and deliver us from God's wrath. What must be understood by us in this context is that God is a consuming fire. His wrath is eternal. How could a mere creature bear the weight of such anger? The devil and the damned in hell, they bear the weight of God's wrath and they bear that for all eternity. Furthermore, we learn that this eternal wrath cannot be born and then applied to the salvation of others. In other words, not, not only can, can, can man nor creature bear the wrath of God in payment for another, but man himself cannot even bear God's wrath and survive to absolve himself. Such wrath in payment for sin, congregation, it has no end. It has only a beginning, and it will be an unending and an eternal punishment. Finally, the Catechism asks in the last place here, what kind of a mediator and deliverer should we then look for? Apparently the questioner has exhausted all other possibilities and he's now brought to the proper place. And in this context, you and I are taught now of what, or more correctly, whom we are to seek for deliverance. You will notice that here for the first time, the title mediator or deliverer is used. You will be familiar with the meaning of the word mediator. He's a, a go-between, if you will. 
a person appointed or volunteered to act on behalf of two warring parties in an effort to, being, to, to, to bring reconciliation. Here too, there are two parties alienated from one another, a holy God and an ungodly humanity, a righteous God and an unrighteous human race. See here the mediator, the Christ, who is able to, so to speak, take God's hand in his right hand, man's hand in his left hand, and clasp them together to reconcile God and man to each other. But we read this mediator must also be a deliverer. He needs to deliver man from his guilt by meeting the claims of God's justice. He needs to deliver man from the bonds of Satan and recreate enemies of God into friends of God and restore them to his image bearers. And this mediator, this deliverer we read further, must first of all be truly human. He must be not as the heretics in the past have claimed that Jesus of Nazareth, who had only the appearance of a man. No, he must be truly man, consisting of body and soul. Since man had sinned, and man must pay, this deliverer must be true man, not just someone who appears to look like a man. No, he must be a member, he must be a truly, truly man, and he must be truly a righteous man. You know what righteous means? It means sinless. In other words, he must be a sinless human being. He must be a member of humanity, a member of the human race, but without the guilt and the pollution of sin in Adam. And then thirdly, he must also be truly God. He must not be God in name only, but he must be truly be God. He must be a participant of the very nature of God. This mediator, this deliverer must be true man, true God in one person. He must be God revealed in the flesh. This too has been a contentious issue throughout all of church history. One of the first hallmarks of liberalism, classic liberalism, has always been the denial of the virgin birth and thereby effectively destroying and denying the humanity of Christ. And such violence denies not only God's word, but also makes it impossible for those who succumb to such teachings to ever see salvation. We're not yet told why this mediator must be all of these things. All of this will be revealed to us as we continue in this series. But here we are simply told that in order to see deliverance, according to God's own word, in order to be saved from our sin, our hope, our only hope, must be found in one, the only one, who meets these conditions. People of God, all of this cannot leave you cold or indifferent or unmoved. The question now comes to each of us personally. Do you, do I, do you anxiously seek, do you earnestly desire to escape your well-deserved punishment, and is it your heart's delight to be restored to God's favor? When that is the burden of your own heart, then with the church of all ages we confess that this is impossible in and of ourselves. 
Many are there to be found, even today, even within the church, who attempt to soothe their own conscience and appease God through vigorous works of self and careful self-imposed discipline and piety. Pity the poor Arminian, desperately trying to appease God with his works. But peace, true peace, true abiding blessedness cannot be found there. It cannot be found in ourselves. It can only be found outside of ourselves in him, in that mediator, that deliverer who is truly man and truly righteous and truly God. My dear precious saints of God, we who have been made right with God by grace through faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Is he your savior? Do you know yourself to be reconciled to the father through the work of the son? People that marvel with me here at the great love of God. We've learned here that man, you and I, we had cut ourselves off from God. We have been made enemies of God. We were inclined by nature to hate him. As our baptism form says it so poignantly, we've become worthy of all manner of misery, yea, to condemnation itself, being unable and unwilling to return to God in order that we would experience his blessing. But, 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 what we were unable to do, God, God in his great love did for us and outside of us in that he gave us his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would have life everlasting. Such news cannot leave us untouched. Such a glorious message cannot leave you cold. It cannot leave you unaffected. That jubilant gospel has got to burn in your heart. Such news has got to cause your heart to burst with joy and eager expectation. Let me close with a little poem in which the author so pointedly sums up the way out of the morass into which we had plunged ourselves. And he writes, There is a burden we can never carry alone. There's a guilt for which we can never atone. But there's comfort and peace we may have as our own. May we not wait for tomorrow. May we hasten today. May we go to Jesus for there's no other way. May we give up our sin, for there's death in its sting. Our eternal destruction at last it will bring. Rather, may we yield our life in his service, his praise gladly bring. Shall we pray? Father, with the psalmist we cry out, from the depths my prayer ascendeth unto God on high. Hear, O Lord, my supplication and my cry. None can stand unscathed and blameless in thy judgment just, but the contrite in thy mercy humbly trust. Lord, my hope is in thy promise, and I wait for thee more than they who watch for morning light to see.